0: Our Bible reading this morning is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear these words from Paul to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left in Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers the lord be with your spirit grace be with you this is god's word
1: well let me encourage you to keep your bibles open to second timothy chapter 4 verses that don just read for us an interesting set of verses right what do we do with these paul's final instructions to timothy what do they mean for us the Apostle Paul is probably the most accomplished church planter that there ever was. A large part of why the gospel has even reached into the Gentile world is because of his work in Asia Minor and beyond to plant churches and to reach into unreached areas. He's had a very successful ministry, but his ministry was not without facing many dangers, many struggles that the book of Acts clearly outlines for us. And so while he is this this great accomplished church planter, at the time of this letter, Paul's ministry has personally taken a very dark and a very sad turn. He's alone in prison. Now the conditions of his imprisonment are not like any sort of experience that, that we could have even today. Paul was in a Roman prison, and that prison itself was literally a 12-foot hole in the ground with an opening at the top that was about the size of a manhole. That's where he was being kept. No one came to clean up the human waste. No one came to bring him food. No orange jumpsuit to keep him warm. You see, each of the prisoners that was in these Roman prisons was dependent upon friends and family to come to them and provide their basic necessities of life, food and clothing. And those people that were doing that were risking danger in associating themselves with that prisoner. So here's Paul, cold, hungry, chained to the wall of this rank prison, The greatest church planter that there ever was. Waiting execution. It's not long until Paul is going to uh, be beheaded by the sword. He knows that his life is dripping away from him one drop at a time. He uses that imagery in verse 6 of chapter 4 when he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, offering. Drip by drip by drip. Paul's life is slipping away from him. He says there also in verse 6, at the time of his departure, has come, not will come. And he's looking forward to that crown of righteousness that's going to be put on his head in in eternity. And So here's a man facing death. And these last words of this letter are the wishes of a man who knows that death is the next stop for him. There's nowhere else to go. This is it. He's facing death. So what I want you and I to do this morning is to consider what we want in death. What do you want in death? Now we often don't like to think about the end of our lives, but there are times when it becomes very important for us to consider what we want when we're going to die. Whether you're 8 or whether you're 88, anywhere in between, on either side of that, it's important for us to consider what we want in death. That can be a much harder challenge for those that are young among us. The children and the youth whose whole life seems like it's before them. But for the young children and the youth, the teenagers that are in our midst, it is important to consider the end of your life. Because that will help you learn how to live in between now and then. When the time of your departure from this world comes, you'll probably not be in prison. At least I hope you won't be in prison. And if you are, it probably won't be what Paul's facing here. You probably won't be facing execution, but all of us are going to face death. Either it will come suddenly or very slowly. We need to consider what it is that we want in death when that time comes. You see, what we're centered on in our lives, in the course of our life on this earth, what we're centered on during that course of our life will determine how we face death. Paul was a man who was centered on Christ, centered on his mission, and that influenced and changed how he was going to now face his coming death. What we center ourselves upon is going to determine how we die. And so in these verses, these final instructions, we learn something about community, and something about confidence when death is that next stop for us. The text breaks down simply like this. Verses 9 through 13 and verses 19 to 22 have to do with Christian community. Those uh, verses there, those sections there are kind of like bookends to the passage. And then that middle section there, the sandwich there, in the middle of it there is uh, verses 14 down to 18 and that has to do with confidence. So community and confidence. So let's begin by looking at community, verses 9 to 13 and 19 to 22. If you look down at verse 9, what you'll see is that Paul is urging Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. Then look down at verse 21. He says, do your best to come before winter, before winter sets in. It's important for us to understand the relationship that Paul and Timothy had. Timothy at the time of this letter was in Ephesus. He was leading the church there. Paul had actually deployed him there, left him there to lead that church. We know from other parts of the New Testament that Paul and Timothy had a very close relationship with one another. And so as Paul sees his life literally slipping away from him through his fingers, what he wanted was Timothy to come near him. We know that Paul himself did not have any biological children, but he had a lot of spiritual children. And those were people he'd either led to the Lord himself or those that they had strengthened in their Christian walk. And Timothy was one of those that Paul had led to the Lord. He was his spiritual son. If you look over at chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, what you'll see there in chapter 1 verse 1 is that actually Timothy is one of Paul's dearest sons. His spiritual son. And in chapter 1 verse 4 we see that Paul is describing him through tears. He wants to see Timothy. So that he too may be encouraged. Paul has this deep fatherly affection for Timothy. He longs to see him so that he can be filled with joy. If you flip over your Bibles to the book of Philippians, just a little bit to the left, what you'll see is even clearly the close relationship that Paul and Timothy had. It's Philippians 2 verse 19. Listen to how Paul describes his relationship with Timothy. He says, "I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him referring to Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as the son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. What great affection Paul has for Timothy? He's of stellar value to him. And so in the face of death, what does he want? He wants this true spiritual son to come near him so that he can be filled with joy one last time before entering into eternity. When someone is facing death, only a few things matter anymore. We stop thinking about our second home that we want to purchase or the second home we own. We stop thinking about upgrading our car or our TV entertainment system. We stop thinking about our favorite sports teams. We stop thinking about our retirement account. We stop thinking about what our yard looks like. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, but it's just that on the brink of eternity, when we're facing death, none of those things have any sort of eternal value anymore. They lose their value. One of the things we see from Paul here that values, that has that eternal value at the end of life, is people, community. He wants people near him. And that's our experience as well, isn't it? When we have a family member who's facing death, what happens is we call the family together. People that are closest to us to come near to their loved ones. So that's why Paul wants Timothy. He's this spiritual son, his spiritual family, so to speak. And he wants him to come as quickly as possible because he does not know when his time of death will actually come. We also see something pretty surprising here in these verses. And that has to do with Paul's relationship with Mark. So he says there to Timothy, get Mark on your way. Now those are great words from Paul. They're great words because you may remember from Acts 16 that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement over Mark. And actually, Mark is the reason why Paul and Barnabas split forever. Apparently, on some trip that Paul and Barnabas were on, Mark was with them, but Mark didn't have the fortitude to stay with him, and so he left. And now when Paul and Barnabas are setting out again, Barnabas wants to take Mark, Paul doesn't want to because he had left them before. He'd been a failure. But now we see in the text there that that Mark, no longer a failure, he's now useful to Paul at the end of his life. From a failure to being useful. And so he instructs Timothy to get Mark on the way. And then he tells him to swing by Troas and to pick up his jacket, so to speak, his cloak, he says there. And he wants him to get the books and the parchments as well. That cloak was probably like a big poncho. So a big woolen fabric with a hole right in the middle that Paul could slip over his head that would hang down to his feet that would keep him warm in the coming winter. When he says there, get the books, the the word there is actually Biblia. It's probably referring to the Old Testament texts. And the parchments, we don't know exactly what these parchments were, but whatever it is, they're valuable to Paul at the end of his life. And so he's calling Timothy, get Mark, get my jacket, get the books at the end of my life because I want people near me that matter to me and I want these things together. I think what we see here is that even at the end of Paul's life, he wanted to keep on studying to know more about Jesus. He wanted to know more. And so here's Paul's dying wishes to Timothy. Come quickly. And bring these important things to me. And what we see then at the, at the end of Paul's life, basically four people were going to be gathered. Paul, Luke who's with him, Mark, and Timothy. Now these were the men that Paul had labored with in the gospel. These were the men that he had invested in. And so perhaps at the end of his life, he wants to give them some final instructions on how to continue to carry out their ongoing Christian work, of missionary work. It's a beautiful picture of community at the end of life. Important people gathered together. But the next words in verse 10 are a sobering reminder that community is often also full of bitterness. It's beautiful, but there's also bitterness. And there's a myth, I think, that Christian community is always going to be easy. It's always going to be uh, simple and, and never hard for us. But it's simply not true. In verse 10 we learn that Demas has deserted Paul. And he's gone to Thessalonica. Paul tells us that the reason why he did that is because he was in love with the present world. That's what he says there. Demas had once been this very close companion with Paul. Demas is mentioned in Philemon as a fellow worker in the gospel. He's also mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 along with Luke. Luke. And so it seemed that at one point, Demas was part of Paul's original church planting team, his core group of guys. But now, he's deserted Paul. Perhaps it's because the situation in Rome was was too intense and he didn't want to associate himself with Paul anymore. He fell in love with the present world, and perhaps it's referencing 1 John chapter 2, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, And the pride in possessions, the things that are in this world, pulled Demas away from serving with Paul. You know, there are lots of things in this world that can tap on our affections. And those are the things that often draw us away from Christ and his mission in this world. That's what happened to Demas, once his close companion of Paul's, but now he's deserted him. So you see, in Paul's mind, there's, there's this community. There's this original group that he was with in his church planting efforts. And now as that, that mental picture comes to his mind, there's holes in the picture. But not only are there holes in the picture, perhaps there's holes in Paul's heart as well. You can almost feel the sadness with which Demas is mentioned here by Paul. He's deserted me. He's gone away because he loved the world. And so in community, we see great things like Timothy and and Mark, who's growing, but we also see Demas, who has deserted. So we see these all the different kinds of relationships that Paul is describing. Paul also describes here different individuals who have gone out from him to serve in different locations. Some people have scattered because they love Christ more than Paul, and some have gone because they love the world more than they love Christ. These that Paul mentions here are those that have have loved Christ more than staying with Paul. So we have Cretans who's gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia, Tithicus was sent to Ephesus, probably with this letter. And so we see again there in verses 19 to 22, this people that Paul had a close relationship with. Erastus is at Corinth. Trophimus was sick, so we had to leave him at Miletus. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia... Perhaps those are Romans that are sending greetings to Timothy. Paul is this master networker. Everywhere he goes, he has an impact on people. It's like this wave of people that come behind Paul everywhere he goes. You know, we could recount numerous people in this congregation, at college church, who have left us for missional purposes. They've left because they love Christ and his mission in this world. Some of you have family members who have left Wheaton to go serve in some of the remotest parts of the world, and they've done it because they love Christ. So there's this community aspect that's going on here, and I think what's happening is that these few verses explode the myth that Christian community is always going to be easy, and that it's always going to be painless. It's simply not true. The richness of Christian community is that it's full of of beautiful beautiful things and bitter things all at the same time. And in that way, maybe we can describe the Christian community as a rose bush. You know, it's a beautiful rose, but it's surrounded by thorns and thistles. Our responsibility is to love the brothers and sisters that, that God has placed us next to. Maybe physically placed you next to, down the pew, or up in the balcony. Children that are down below us or the youth that are in our church. We're a community that is full of beauty, but also full of bitterness. Because some among us are going to be like Demas. Some of us are going to fall away, fall in love with the present world. Some are like Mark, who are growing once failures but now useful and growing and are be others of us who are sent out from here on Christ's mission. It's a beautiful thing, but it's full of bitterness and heartache at times as well. All of us long for community and for friendship. That longing for community and friendship is given to us by God. It's part of what it means to be made in His image. We, We long for deep and affectionate friendships and connections with one another and the church is the best place to find those types of realities because what bonds us together as a community is not just experience. We're actually bonded together because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what bonds us together as a community. But here's the rub. The rub is that since the time of Genesis 3, our attempts at creating that community have always been distorted and disfigured. Our longing for true and authentic communities is often frustrated, I, I believe, in a large part because we're looking for heaven on earth. And so we put eternal expectations on finite beings, on each other. The longing for community is, is actually, I believe, a, a longing for the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were at perfect harmony with one another, and they were at perfect harmony with God. Because God was at the heart of their community with one another. There was harmony among themselves. However, when they sinned against God, the result was this scattered and broken relationship with God. They were cut off from God, and as a result, there was relational discord between each other. And it's not long into Genesis until we see the very first murder of two human beings. And so our longing for community is actually a longing for the way things were in the Garden of Eden before sin. And so our attempts to create that community are always going to be full of frustration and beautiful things. So the the beauty and the bitterness here, because we're waiting for our heavenly home where all things will be made right. And where Christ establishes his new heaven and the new earth. College Church does a lot of things really, really well. But College Church is not a perfect place by any stretch of the imagination. We strive for unity with one another because we're supposed to, because it's a biblical mandate for us to do so. But this is not a perfect place. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've experienced some sort of relational discord with someone here in this body. There's beauty and bitterness. We need to be careful of idealizing the Christian community. Not idolizing it, but idealizing it. Expecting heaven on earth. Thinking that the church now and our experience here should be completely perfect and that all of our longings for community will be met right now. It's simply not true. We love one another. Deeply we care for one another as we look forward to our heavenly home. Our responsibility is to love the brothers and sisters that God has placed us next to. A community full of beauty and bitterness. And so as you face death, and as I've asked you that question to consider what you want at the end of your life, I want to encourage all of us to invest deeply in the relationships that God has given to you. Extending grace. Giving grace. As we wait for sin to be completely eradicated from our lives forever and ever community. Well, Let's look at the second point, verses 14 down to 18. The second thing we see here in Paul's last words are his confidence that he had in ministry and his confidence for eternity. Look at verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will, re- will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. We don't know exactly who this Alexander is, but he's probably the cause for Paul's arrest and for his imprisonment. And so it's, it's a remarkable thing here that Paul, at the end of his life, is not vengeful towards Alexander. Instead, he leaves vengeance in the hands of the Lord. In verse 16, Paul goes on then to describe that at his first defense that he was completely alone. There he was standing before Nero, before the Roman tribunal, and nobody came near him, all alone. Now we don't know exactly why nobody came to be an advocate for him. Perhaps Luke is not yet there with him in Rome. And with the departure of Demas, he truly is all alone. So there he stands before Nero, preaching the gospel. Either way, Paul's attitude here is remarkable because he doesn't want anyone to feel guilty for not coming. You notice what he says there. He says, may it not be held against them. So he doesn't condemn those who didn't come. Instead, in verses 17 and 18, we see Paul kind of roaring with great confidence. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. This verse here shows Paul's confidence in ministry. And I believe that this is his kind of personal account of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which you may know is the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, these are the great words of Jesus. He says, all authority is mine. Go make disciples, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So here's Paul at the end of his life. Left alone before the authorities of the world. Abandoned by man. Nobody came. But there's Jesus, he says, standing by him. You can read about this later, but in Acts 23, we learn that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ stood right with Paul. It wasn't a vision, it wasn't a trance. In Acts 23, it's actually, the words there are are exactly like these, he stood by Paul. And he whispered in Paul's ear in Acts 23, verse 11, Paul, take courage. You've been my witness in Jerusalem, you will be my witness in Rome. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ standing before him, whispering in his ear, take courage. I'm with you. Abandoned by man, but not by Jesus. And so here in verse 17, we, saw, we see Paul, he's kind of roaring with his great confidence with four things that he says. First, he says that the Lord stood with me, just as he promised that he would do in the Great Commission, and perhaps he's re- remembering that Acts 23 moment. The Lord stood with me. Secondly then, what did the Lord do? The Lord strengthened him. The risen king, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who has all authority over nations has strengthened Paul. Third thing, what did he strengthen him for though? That strengthening was for the proclamation of the gospel. He didn't just strengthen him at the end of his life for comfort and for security The Lord stood with him. The Lord strengthened him so that he would proclaim the message, the gospel. Right there. You remember Acts 1-8 where Jesus says, You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. The power and strength of the risen authoritative Christ is for witness to the gospel. That is what he strengthened Paul for. That he would be a strong witness. The fourth thing that Paul says was that this proclamation of the gospel that he got strength for, was so that all the Gentiles or all the nations might hear it. Paul has always had this global kind of perspective. It's his passion to the very end that all of the nations would hear the good news about Jesus. Here's Paul's confidence in his ministry. Abandoned by men. But the Lord stood by him. The Lord strengthened him for the gospel to be preached among all the nations. He's roaring with his confidence because he knows whom he has believed in and he's trusted in his promises that he would never leave him, that he would never forsake him. It was Paul's experience right there in this Roman prison, not forsaken at all. And it would be your experience and my experience as well when we follow Jesus where he leads us. He will be with us. It's been the experience of thousands of missionaries for so many years. And it'll be your experience and my experience as well. I wonder what new adventure God is calling you on this next year. What are you going to risk your life on this next year? Perhaps God is calling you into a new area of ministry. Perhaps he's calling you to that area of ministry or to reach out to someone at work or at school or whatever it may be. There's a new area that God is calling you into. He's going to give you opportunities to do that. Take comfort from these words of Christ's promise to you that he will be with you. He will never forsake you. He will stand by you and strengthen you so that you can preach the gospel Some of you will remember William Carey was famous for saying, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. I love that. I think it's great. In that order, trust Him. Trust His promises. He will stand by you. He will give you strength for whatever He's calling you to do. And then, then attempt great things for God. What a wonderful promise. It's a confidence that we can have in the promises of Christ. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will be with us. That's the confidence that Paul had in his ministry. And then in verse 18, we see Paul's confidence for eternity. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul did not expect to be set free from his Roman prison. He knows his life is dripping away, and so as he looks death straight in the face, he has such great confidence of what's going to happen to him at the end of his life. His assertion that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed was not an expectation of deliverance from death or from pain, but what he's saying is that nothing is going to change or shake his faith in Jesus. Nothing is going to take away his courage. Paul has lived his life well, building community with people, trusting in the promises of Christ that he will be with him. And now that he's facing death, he knows that he will not be abandoned by Christ when that moment comes. He will not be abandoned. You'll recall Romans 8, 38 and 39. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, we have these this great promises where Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing can separate us. Nothing in all of creation. No powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything. Neither death nor life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. God sent Christ to rescue his children and to bring them safely into his heavenly kingdom. There's a confidence that Christians have for eternity when they're facing death, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, they can take our life away. but They cannot take Christ away from us. When we're in his hands, nothing can snatch us away. That is a confidence that Paul had. You know, there's something beyond this world that's more satisfying, more invigorating, more inviting than anything else we could experience. And it is God's kingdom. Right now we're on the outside of that kingdom. We're on the wrong side of the door, so to speak. We get get glimpses into God's kingdom of what it's going to be like there. But the world we live in now is kind of a mere shadow of the reality of God's kingdom. And it will come. Paul is brimming with confidence for eternity because he knows that this world is not his home. But he is waiting and longing for the city that is beyond. And he knows that he's going to get there because of God's grace. That's what we're waiting for too. God's kingdom. Where things will be perfect and made right. The confidence to get there is the confidence that we have in Jesus, So as you consider your death, what do you want? Do you want that confidence? Some of us sitting here this morning will probably not be sitting here with us this time next year because the Lord is going to call you home. It's just a reality. And so as we consider what we want in death, do you have the confidence... That when that moment comes, whether it is quickly or whether it is slowly, that you will be brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. Do you have that confidence? That confidence comes from trusting in what Christ has done on the cross. You know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was deserted by all of his disciples. All of his earthly community left him. But he was also deserted by his heavenly community. You remember on the cross, Jesus exclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, deserted by his earthly community and by his heavenly community. But we know that the grave could not hold him. He was resurrected from the dead, satisfied the requirements of the law. But he was willing to endure being deserted by those two communities, his earthly and heavenly community, so that you and I, could be gathered into his eternal community forever and ever. That is what secures us. It is what Jesus endured on the cross for us. Confidence for eternity. That is what Paul had. And I wonder at the end of your life, when that moment comes, do you have that confidence? As you consider what you want in death, may you find that confidence so that no matter what happens to you in this life, opposed, imprisoned, whatever may happen to you, that you'll be able to have the confidence to know that you have never been forsaken, that the Lord has never left you, and that when you are facing death in the face, that you will be roaring with confidence for eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done in Jesus that provides us with this confidence. We are so thankful, Father, that you have given faith to us that we can trust in your promises knowing that you are the one who's going to guard us and you are the one who's going to bring us safely into your heavenly home forever and ever. It is your grace. Father, for those that are here this morning that don't have that confidence, I pray that they would find it in you. They would look to you for that confidence. Father, for us as a church, would you help us to continue to build community with one another? Would you help us to find confidence in you, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen.